Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Dear listener, please close your eyes for this movie theater meditation brought to you by Fandango. Breathe in. Smell the fresh popcorn. Now exhale. <sighs> Open your eyes and proceed to the best seats in the house you reserved on Fandango. Recline. Now, download the free Fandango app for movie times, tickets, and seats at your favorite theaters. Fandango. It's your ticket to the movies. podcast the post training camp trip peter king podcast really happy to be with you i'm back in my brooklyn compound uh after being out for 27 days and one of the things that i want to do is just to recap a little bit particularly this last week and then to tell you what is coming and what's ahead but first of all uh my guests this week are going to be sean mcveigh the coach of the Super Bowl champion, uh, Los Angeles Rams, caught up with him in Thousand Oaks, California. And then uh, Dak Prescott, the co- the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, met with him at the Irvine Marriott when they were in joint practices with the uh, uh, Los Angeles Chargers. And I think these are sort of different conversations. And you'll see McVeigh is very much into where they are right now, where they are today. With Dak Prescott, I went back a little bit in time to sort of encapsulate what's happened in these last six crazy years of his life. So I hope you enjoy those two uh, kind of brief conversations with two of the really important people in the NFL. So a lot has happened over the last month. But when I look at the calendar and I look back at where I've been, you know, stretching, you know, geographically from Foxborough, Massachusetts to Costa Mesa, California, and so many points in between. You know, I went to 20 training camps and or games, you know, and I met with people from 23 teams. And so I'm sorry that I missed nine. And it's funny, I get so many letters from people who say, well, geez, why didn't you go here? Why didn't you go there? God, you missed the Jets. How could you miss the Jets? Well, you know, can't hit them all. So I wanted to just run down a little bit of the noteworthy things from the last week. And then in our last segment, I'll just give you five takeaways overall from my training camp trip. So... The one thing that really interested me about this past week when I was on the road, and that stretched from uh, Thousand Oaks, California, where the Rams permanent facility is semi-permanent facility. They were out of training camp. So I saw a scrimmage up there down to Costa Mesa, California to see the Cowboys and Chargers joint practice. Then I went to, uh, you know, it's kind of odd geography, but I flew from LA to Cincinnati on a red eye and drove up to Indianapolis and spent a day with the Colts uh, in advance of their game against uh, the Detroit Lions on Saturday. And then Sunday drove over to Cleveland and did something different on this trip. It wasn't all football. A lot was Deshaun Watson. So we'll get into thoughts of all those, but I just wanted to talk about the Rams a little bit. And, you know, so let me paint the picture for you and set the scene. So the Rams have left training camp in Irvine, California, at the University of California, Irvine. And now they're back at their training facility. And it's sort of an odd training facility. You feel like, you know, in fact, when I was driving away from there, (coughs) there was... Uh, a fairly big brush fire and I saw a helicopter dropping water onto the brush fire. So they are, I'm not saying in the belly of the beast where the 
all the fires have been in California, but there have been a lot of fires right around them. So you sort of get the sense in this arid, uh, warm environment that they are not only, uh, you know, doing football, but they have to have antennae up for these fires that have hit the West so seriously. But on this particular day I was there, there was a scrimmage, uh, offense, defense. And so I was looking at three things in particular. Number one, I wanted to see Matthew Stafford's arm. Number two, I wanted to see uh, Aaron Donald's readiness because everybody kept telling me coming into camp, just watch Aaron Donald practice. And then number three, I wanted to see how Raheem Morris, the defensive coordinator, was sort of building this team, building this defense again with no Von Miller, you know, some different pieces on that defense. So that's what I went in. Let's go in order. Matthew Stafford. My guess is that he threw 70 or 80 balls in all kinds of throws on this day. And, you know, I had come in thinking that he was sort of probably babying his arm. Uh, and in fact, he was not babying his arm. He threw the crap out of the ball. And that's exactly what Sean McVay told me after practice. Uh, he said he just looks like the classic Matthew Stafford. Now, Stafford told me my arm is fine. We're just, we've just been trying to protect it. But I remember one distinct throw, probably 38, 40 yards down the left sideline to his new receiver, Allen Robinson, the free agent that they got from Chicago. Uh, the pass was incomplete, but he ripped that ball down the sideline. And so for all of you wondering, God, is Stafford, is he going to make it through this year with this elbow thing we've heard about? I would not worry about that at all. In fact, afterwards, he said, listen, we're just trying to be smart about this. I'm fine. Absolutely fine. <clears throat> so now Aaron Donald. So I got, I never really had a long conversation with Aaron Donald until training camp last year. And because he's a bit reclusive, he doesn't really like doing a lot of big media things, which is fine. But I really tried to get him last year, met him a little bit. And then after the Super Bowl, uh, when he played so great, I did about a 40-minute Zoom with him uh, that I, I wrote in my column, Football Morning in America. And he was just so jubilant, so jovial that day. Uh, I don't think he'd slept very much in the five days since the Super Bowl. His voice was all raspy. But I just got to know him. And the one thing that I thought that day is, look, there probably was a legitimate chance that he might retire. I think Rodney Harrison on uh, Football Night in America at the Super Bowl, I really think that he was seriously considering retiring uh, because if he won the Super Bowl, he'd accomplished it all. But I think he got caught up after the season, not only in the fact that if he plays a couple more years, he could make a ton of money and he could just burnish you know, what is already, in my opinion, if he never played another snap, he's going to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Um, and I and I usually hate to say those things about people being a Hall of Fame voter. I usually hate to say those things. But in this particular case, I feel it very, very strongly. Um, and so he told me after practice, said, listen, I'm committed for the next two years, which made some headlines uh, the next day. But he said, look, I'm committed to the, for the next two years uh, and I'm going to do everything I can to help us win it again. So now you watch practice and Aaron Donald really plays practice like he plays a game. If you coach Aaron Donald, you know, Raheem Morris was the defensive coordinator, was joking with me yesterday or last week about, he said, look, when he, when he retires, I retire. Um, and, and as, as Morris said, he said, you know, he's one of those guys, you never have to talk to him about effort, you know, as he's always going to give it every day. But what was so interesting about this practice is that, and the reason why I loved being there on this day, full pads, full speed, not touching the quarterback, but otherwise really pretty intense practice. 
And Aaron Donald at one point got in a scrum with the offensive line. And, and for people who, you know, probably wonder, well, geez, why would guys on the same team fight each other? And it's very simple. A lot of times, if you're playing full go against anybody and you're used to them and you're used to them, and after a while, maybe... Uh, maybe Aaron Donald's hand got too far up a guy's helmet and pushed his neck back or, or vice versa. And so at one point, this scrum starts, you can see pushing and shoving. Sean McVay is running into the middle of it to try to stop it. And Aaron Donald takes right tackle Rob Havenstein's helmet, yanks it right off his head and throws it angrily about 10 yards. So I was standing with the new uh, preseason TV analyst of the Rams, Andrew Whitworth, uh, who was out at practice that day just watching. Obviously, the, the veteran of a 1,000 years in the NFL with the Bengals and the Rams. His last game was the Super Bowl victory over the Bengals. And so we're standing there, and he just sort of chuckles. And I said, now, really, you can tell me the truth. Does that stuff carry over? What's it going to be like with him and Havenstein afterwards? And he goes, we I've been in so many of those. By the time you get to the locker room, it's almost always over. And when I talked to Donald afterwards, he goes, man, it's all love. It's football. And Aaron Donald is the type of guy off the field that you actually trust that afterwards, he and Havenstein are going to walk up to each other, maybe not hug it out, but at least fist bump or handshake it out. So that was a really interesting thing. I think the third thing was about Raheem Morris. Um, so I've got a lot of respect for Raheem Morris. Uh, he was the former head coach at age 32 of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, coached there for three years. He just wasn't ready to be an NFL head coach at the time. You know, not many people remember, but the Glazer family basically didn't want him to get away and they thought he might get away Raheem Morris to another team because his uh, predecessor uh, one of his predecessors on the coaching staff Mike Tomlin you know had gotten away and now was a young and very successful head coach for the Pittsburgh Steelers so they said we're not going to let Raheem Morris get away and so at age 32 he became the coach coach three years wasn't ready you know, and it's sort of been <clears throat> itinerant since then. Went from Washington uh, to Atlanta, even coached the receivers in the passing game for four years in Atlanta. Worked on the other side of the ball, which I think is a gigantic plus for Raheem Morris going forward. But now he's with the Rams. And you know, I wrote a little bit about this this week, but what interested me so much is all the guys on that defense. Jalen Ramsey, uh, Aaron Donald, even a young guy like Nick Scott uh, and Ernest Jones, whose story I told in my column this week, but they're all like, this guy is so smart. He sees stuff before it happens. Um, great communicator with the players. And that's one of the reasons why I think Raheem Morris has a very good shot this coming year uh, in the 2023 head coaching cycle to get a job. But I just want to tell you just one quick story. So I was, I was poking around, I was asking people, so give me an example of, uh, you know, a, 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 give me a good example of why Raheem Morris is good. And I thought it was really kind of interesting. I, had, I found out about a, uh, uh, something that he did in the Super Bowl. And at halftime in the Super Bowl, he told rookie linebacker Ernest Jones, 230 pounds, rookie linebacker Ernest Jones, okay, you're going to now be blitzing in the second half so in the second half Ernest Jones was shocked you know when they got all these high-paid guys on this defense and what's their coaching wrinkle in, at halftime by Raheem Morris take the rookie third round linebacker really hasn't accomplished much in his short career in the NFL and say you go get Joe Burrow well midway through the third quarter uh he was blitzing he got by Joe Mixon. He sacked Burrow, wrecked one drive. In the fourth quarter, he wrecked another drive with a tackle for loss on Joe Mixon. Uh, blitzed seven times in the second half. You know, altogether on the game, he had four quarterback pressures. That sack, 
So this is something that really impacted the game. And I think in our rush to love Aaron Donald, Cooper Cup, Matthew Stafford after the game, what makes football so great and so fun and so interesting is that if you went to Vegas before this game and there was a line on, you know, coaching wrinkle uh, that really helped win the game done at halftime by one of the coaches in this game in the top 100 would not have been send Ernest Jones on more blitzes. So, and that's one of the reasons why I think that Raheem Morris is pretty damn good at his job. So what I want to do now is I want to get into my conversation with Sean McVay. After McVay, we're going to get into the other places I was during the week. And then a few thoughts. I'm going to give you my five takeaways. And that involves some players that if I have a fantasy football team this year, which I don't, the last time I was in a fantasy football league was, I don't know, four or five years ago, my daughter, Mary Beth, has had one in Seattle. She was the commissioner, asked me to be in. There were nine women in the league. I finished ninth <laughs> out of 12. So, uh, you know, I'm not the best fantasy football uh, I, I'm not the, I'm not the Matthew Barry of the fantasy football set, but I've got a few thoughts that I want to share with you. Uh, and I'll do that, uh, when we're headed out of the podcast, but for now, here's me, Sean McVay, Thousand Oaks, California. Peter King here at Rams training camp in California with Sean McVay, the head coach of the Rams, the Super Bowl winning Rams. So Sean, when you look back at that night, for somebody who has been a football lifer the way you are, what is the one memory about that night that will stick with you for the rest of your life? I think the immediacy of when Aaron ended up making that play and it sets in that these guys did it, they finished the job looking at their faces. And then I'll never forget being in the locker room with Raheem after the game, you know, kind of letting all the media Raheem stuff. Morris. Raheem yeah. Morris. He and I both had splitting headaches, you know, which is usually par for the course after the game. And you told uh, Coach Parcells told you that when I've mentioned that yeah. before. But sitting in there and then – Mr. Cronkey and Josh Cronkey start to filter in, and then that was followed up by a couple other coaches and staffers, and then Matthew and Cooper came in there. And that hour and a half after the media had really settled down, where we're in there having a couple drinks, relaxing, kind of reminiscing, where they're talking about the fourth and one play, how they had kind of taken the ownership to time it up. It was pretty special. That That's, you know, there's so many memories, Peter, but that one in particular, and then the immediacy right after it set in that the guys did it, those are the things that I'll always remember. There was a lot of talk right after the Super Bowl that you might go to television. Did you ever seriously consider it? I don't think so. I, I think what you know is is that it's really flattering and everybody likes being chased a little bit, but I didn't want to disingenuously uh, pursue some of those options when you know it's still, you know, passionate about coaching, working with these players, these coaches. That's what really gives you the purpose and the joy. Um, but to say that it wasn't uh, nice and that you don't listen in the immediacy after with all the emotions, that you're not kind of, you know, you don't pause to think a little bit. But it never got anything further than uh, flattering and never had a meeting. But uh, who knows, maybe sometime down the line. So your, your left tackle, retired left tackle, Andrew Whitworth, had a great line about you. He said, I could see him coaching for the next two years. I could see him coaching for the next 32 years. Is that, do you think, kind of accurate that who knows what the future holds? I think that is. I think that's somebody that's one of my closest friends that really knows me very well. And, you know, I talk about it all the time. And I think I've really, you know, because of the people around me, Peter, I've done a better job of just being present, being in the moment. I think that's one of the separators of anybody that I've been around that's great. And when you just look at whatever arena it is, you know, the people that are totally with you, they're totally and completely present. That's what I'm really striving to do. I think we've made a lot of progress because of those people around me. And that's why I think that's a fair statement that, you know, you're just living in the moment. And I know I'm loving coaching right now. How has, if any way, marriage changed you? You got married this offseason. I did. I did. You know, it's got my got my nice rubber ring on right now. How do you like that? Um, that is not the ring you got at the, that at is the not church. The ring is that right? A, no, this is this is the convenient one that doesn't make me feel like every time I hit a guy on his shoulder pads, it's uh, potentially going to jam up my my finger. So it's amazing. I mean, she's she's been as big a reason as anything why that balance and why the quality of life has been significantly better since she came into my life, Peter. 
leader. And so, so grateful for my wife. Um, it is very similar, but there is something about that commitment that you make to one another that just feels right. And I couldn't ask for somebody better to be the centerpiece of my life. Let me ask you two things about this season. There was much said in the last two, three weeks about the state of Matthew Stafford's elbow. I'm out here watching two hours of practice. He must have thrown 150 balls, several deep ones. It looks like his arm did not fall off with that usage. How has his arm looked to you? Yeah, I thought, uh, I mean, you saw it out here, Peter. Yeah. You know what it looks like. And, and he looked like Matthew Stafford to me. There was no restrictions, spraying it all over the yard, all different types of launch points, you know, being able to activate all parts of our offense. And I thought he had great energy, great command. Um, these guys feed off of him, and he's such a special part of this team because of his demeanor, but also because of the production and this, the way that he handles himself and um, felt really good about what he did today. Winning a Super Bowl for a second time is relatively impossible if you look at history. Do you talk about it much with the team? What's been your message to the team? The message is I think the guys have an appreciation, Peter, that we don't even really look at it as going for back-to-back. -back. It's being the best version of the 2022 Rams that we can possibly be. And, you know, everybody's got the goal of trying to be able to win a championship. But I think our players know. You hear them talk about it. Last year has nothing to do with what we're going to do this year. There's too much time. There's too many good coaches and players around the league that adjust and adapt. And so um, how this team really continues to establish their culture, their football philosophy and ultimately come together as a team is, is what's taking place right now. Um, and that's what we're really focused on. And if that leads to giving ourselves an op to get into the tournament, then that's outstanding. But, but we're just taking it a day at a time. And, and I think our guys understand that. Sean McVay, good luck. Congratulations. Congratulations, too, on the wedding ring. There you go. Have a great year. Thank you, Peter. In Thousand Oaks, California with Sean McVay, I'm Peter King. The Premier League is built on hope. The hope of discovering a new star. It doesn't take long, but Darwin Nunez to make an impression. The hope of rewriting history. And the hope of continuing a dynasty. Unstoppable week after week. This is the Premier League on NBC, USA and Peacock. I'm ready to go. Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. Oh, what do you need for work? I'm an ad salesman. <laughs> oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. There's no place like the movie theater. The smell of fresh popcorn welcomes you to a full body experience while candies and sodas compete for your attention. Pick me! Pick me! Hoping to join you in the best seats you've reserved on Fandango. It's where movie lovers buy tickets, pick seats, and double up on rewards points all online. All that's left is to walk in, snack up, and sit back. Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. My thanks to Sean McVay. It's always entertaining. Always says a couple of things that make you go, hmm. One of those this time, is he going to coach two years? Is he going to coach 32 years? Who knows? I have a feeling he will not be leaving there until Matthew Stafford does, at least. So let's go down the coast. I got in the car uh, in Thousand Oaks and drove down to... Uh, the Western South Coast Plaza in Costa Mesa, California. That was going to be my base for the next couple of days. And <clears throat> I'll tell you what is interesting just about the Western South Coast Plaza. And this will tell you how old I am. In, 19, in the 1986 season, this would have been January of 87, I was covering the New York Giants. And the Giants that year won the NFC. And they went to the Super Bowl in Pasadena against the Denver Broncos. That year, the headquarters hotel for the Giants was the Western South Coast Plaza. In those days, the beat people covering the team could stay in the hotel with the team. Believe me, those days are over. So I came down on Tuesday morning. I was on, you know, I lived in New Jersey at the time. I'm on East Coast time. 
it's like quarter five. I wake up. I can't get back to sleep. Five o'clock, I walk down or I go downstairs into the lobby to get a cup of coffee. And who do I see in the corner of the lobby? <coughs> Excuse me. Bill Parcells and his high school basketball coach, Mickey Corcoran, who was a bit of, for the rest of Mickey's life, was kind of an advisor to Bill Parcells. Mickey's lineage dates back to uh, knowing Vince Lombardi very well and in New Jersey. And so they were sitting there and, and Bill says, hey, sit down. So I sat down, talked for maybe a half hour. I have no recollection of what the conversation was about. But I said, man, that's pretty cool. I just sat with, you know, the coach of the team I cover at the Super Bowl having coffee for a half hour in the morning. And he left maybe about quarter of six. He didn't want to be down there when there was any traffic or any, you know, bunch of people. <clears throat> so I figured next day, I'm going to do the same thing. To be sure, I set my alarm this time. I went down at five o'clock. There he is again. And then on Thursday, I did it. There he is again. So I pretended like I was just, hey, I just came down to get a coffee. And I sat down, talked to him every time. And <clears throat> the next day when I was, I went down again and he was not there. I think he got tired of, uh, of maybe not his privacy being invaded, but he figured I'll just go get the coffee and go back up to my room. So, but that is my memory of the West and South Coast Plaza. And so I like to stay there anytime I'm, you know, I've been there now three times since uh, the Chargers and Rams have been right in that vicinity for training camp. So when I went over to the Chargers, one of the things that really interested me was, so I got there on the day that they were finalizing the Derwin James contract negotiation. And so a lot of times you think, so a guy is going to get a contract done and, and is it really that big a deal? And what do people think? But here's what was different about this one. This was uh, before practice and I'm standing with Tom Telesco, the general manager of the chargers. And we're talking about, uh, we're talking about how kind of unusual it was that a player, Derwin James, was one of these guys, he was known by everybody in the building. And when I say everybody, you know, I could tell when he walked by people, this was after he did his contract news had just come out that day. And after he did his contract, he's like, <clears throat> he's hugging the, the, the camp, the web, uh, the website camera person, you know, and, and talking to him for a minute, you know, the assistant equipment guy hugging and, and everybody, and Tom Telesco said, here's why Derwin James is so popular and why he's so important to our team. He goes, I was scheduled to go to the dedication <clears throat> of a high school weightlifting room uh, that we had helped fund with the Chargers. And something came up, I couldn't go. And so we're thinking, oh, God, everybody's on vacation. This is like in early July and nobody's going to be around. <clears throat> so quickly, community relations people start to reach out and everything. They call Derwin. He says, yeah, I can be there. When is it? So Derwin James goes there and he gives the kids, you know, a little pep talk about, you know, be grateful for this. Uh, this is going to help you get where you want to go if you have football dreams, blah, blah, blah. And. So as Telesco said, it turned out to be a blessing, really, because they wouldn't want to hear from, you know, a skinny GM who looks like he never was on the football field. Imagine Derwin James giving those guys a message. And that, to me, a lot of people said, man, Derwin James missed 20-something games due to injury in his first four years. Why would they be giving him all this money after he has this hold in? You know, these things that aren't really holdouts, he reports, but he doesn't practice fully. Uh, and that's one of the reasons. Every team, honestly, is different in the NFL. And every team treats players a little bit differently. And I think the Chargers have such tremendous regard for Derwin James, the person, and Derwin James, the leader, 
not just the guy who can play all over the back seven of the box, but or of the defense, excuse me, can play down in the box. They they think when they look at Derwin James, this is the guy we want to be the leader of our team. I found that very interesting. Two other Charger related things. When they went out and got Khalil Mack for, I think it was the 48th pick in the draft. uh, And then I think sixth round pick in 23. When they went out and did that, I said, wow, if he's healthy, that is a really, really good trade. Now, if is a big question because you just can't tell when somebody comes off of, he's had foot surgery, he's 31 years old, and you just can't tell. I watched him for a couple of practices, extremely uh, fit, uh, showing no signs of favoring his foot. He looks fine. And as he said to me, he said, you know, I hope people think that I'm going downhill because I'm not, and I'll show them this year. So I do think he's motivated after missing 10 games last year in Chicago. I think he's motivated to show people that not only is he not done, but that he rushing from the right and uh, Joey Bosa rushing from the left can be the kind of uh, bookend pass rush team that, in their opinion, could be the best in football this year. Finally, Justin Herbert. Uh, I told you the story in the lead up to this, but I think one of the things that is kind of impressive about Justin Herbert right now at this stage in his young career is that um, he's not a big media guy. He's not somebody who wants the spotlight. I think he would love it if every day he could go to practice, go home, uh, play the games on Sunday or whatever day, and go home. Uh, But he understands that the other thing is a part of it, and so he does it. But I just think he is the... um, He's the kind of guy you want on your team from the standpoint of he shows everybody what's really important, his extra work, uh, his desire to get even the little things right. And when I say he didn't like a throw he made during practice on Thursday against the Cowboys, I mean, he came out after practice and threw I, I, I'd have trouble estimating, but it's something like 60 balls, the exact same route, you know, over and over and again to these two receivers. And as he told me later, he goes, I, I think during practice, if I make a throw I don't like, you do have to move on. So you can't keep that with you. But he sort of catalogs it in his head and he goes, I need to work on that one later. I mean, hard to imagine anybody who would like a quarterback uh you know anybody who could have a quarterback with work ethic as serious as that um couple of thoughts about the Dallas Cowboys so you know a lot of times when you go to these joint practices some people stick out and look really really impressive and in this particular case I still think the Cowboys are really reaching and scratching and clawing for uh, for another receiver. And they don't really think that they have found, you know, a good, uh, you know, an explosive good complement to C.D. Lamb because they're waiting right now for Michael Gallup to come back in full health. I think that's probably going to be sometime in the first month of the season. I don't know when, but I'm not sure the Cowboys are going to be that really explosive offense early in the year while they're still searching for another weapon or two in the receiving game. No one really has emerged yet. That's number one. But number two, I just want to talk a little bit about Dak Prescott and you'll hear this in my conversation with him. What interests me about Dak right now at this point in his career is that, you know, there's a lot of pressure on him to take the Cowboys further 
than he has. And that pressure is never going to go away. The Dallas Cowboys are sort of like you know, teams like the Packers. Uh, there aren't many of them that are national franchises. And I think now uh, what you're going to see is this pressure now on him is really going to ratchet up. The reason why I think he's built to handle it is what he's been through in his life. You know, not only the death of his mother, the death of his brother, but also, you know, one of the things I think that you don't really think of because you just have thought of Dak Prescott's always been there. You know, it's like he never had to work his way up. He was forced to play in 2016 due to an injury to Tony Romo, and he just never let go of the job. And so that to me, you know, thinking about, you know, he's picked late in the fourth round. And I tell a story when I'm talking to him here, but he's picked late in the fourth round and, and how he has just sort of climbed the ladder so seamlessly, nothing is too big for him. That's what really impresses me about Dak Prescott. Let's listen to my conversation with the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, Dak Prescott. Peter King here with Dallas Cowboys quarterback, Dak Prescott. Um, Dak, we just, I just watched the practice, the joint practice between you and the Chargers for two days. And it really looked like you sort of were, were having fun with Justin Herbert and some of their guys and the throwing contest afterwards. What are these things like for you and like for players who, you know, probably are just used to normal training camp what are these joint practices like? Oh, yeah, they're cool. This year was the first chance that I got to participate in them. Last year we did them, um, but because of injuries, I missed them. And then so this year, not only the Chargers, but the Broncos as well, just being able to practice against a, a different defense, see something different that you've seen for the last few weeks or the whole offseason, uh, get some game time reps without necessarily getting hits and um, risking the injuries. So uh, they're great. And then just be able to connect with the players on the other side, um, have some fun, build some relationships. And uh, our guys won the QB challenge there at the end. So I saw that, yeah. Good to yeah. leave with some bragging Justin rights. Herbert was not pleased. No, I saw his <laughs> last few throws. I could tell how hard he was throwing it. He was not happy with it, but yeah. that happens. Yeah. Um, you know, I really wanted to go back in time and ask you about a couple of things because I covered the Cowboys draft in 2016, and I remember they desperately wanted Paxton Lynch in the first round. And Jerry Jones, the next day, it was like his dog died. You know, he was so disappointed he didn't get Paxton Lynch. And then early in the third day of the draft, first pick of the fourth round, they think they have a trade made to go up and get the first pick of the fourth round to get Connor Cook of Michigan State. And finally, you know, Jason's in the room and Jerry and Steve, Jason Garrett and Jerry and Steven. And, uh, you know, I forget who said it, but somebody said, hey, listen, Dak is really good. Let's be excited about Dak. Come on, let's be excited. How much did you know that weekend of what was going on inside the Cowboys? Yeah, I didn't know um, didn't know anything that was going inside the Cowboys that weekend. Uh, learned week weeks after, maybe months after, and got getting all the details. Uh, and I'm pretty sure it was Coach Linehan that that stood up and said, "Hey, Dyke's good. Let, let's go with that route." So um, honestly, just going, just reflecting back on that and knowing what could have happened, knowing that I could have been on another 31 other teams, uh, but. Things work out and things happen for a reason. So some people were pulling some strings upstairs. So obviously your career takes an incredible turn when you've got to play early and you play well. I just want to go back in time and ask you, what are you thinking as you're having success after being a fourth-round pick where nobody expected anything of you in that first year? What yeah. was that like? Yeah, honestly, it was um, confirmation to myself of just continuing to believe in what I believe in, believe in who I am, believe in my process and preparation and the way that I do things, and they'll turn out successful. Um, I feel like I've been doubted in every level. Uh, and honestly, I got the starting job, the starting quarterback job in high school, college, and pro due to a guy in front of me getting injured. So wow. at that time, when I, when I stepped in, I said, maybe this is it again. And I took an opportunity, didn't want to – 
um, put it in anybody else's hands to take it away from me. Um, as I said, just trusting myself. And then, so as the success happened, it was just a confirmation. And it doesn't matter what others say about you. It doesn't matter what others believe in you. I know who I am. I know what I'm capable of. And never forget that. Why do you think you have been so well-suited to have maybe the most public uh, microscope on you job in the NFL, which is to be the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. And you've not seemingly had a problem or been nervous or sort of felt beaten down by it at all. Why is that? Simply as, as I said, I believe in myself. I'm comfortable in my own skin. I know who I am. Uh, I try to be transparent and genuine in everything that I do. Um, therefore, if something ever would come up or if some this or that, it wouldn't be a surprise. It's who I am. And, um, yeah, just focusing on all the things that I can control. And I think the more that everyone in this world can do that, they'll, they'll control their emotions, they'll control their responsibilities, and a lot of things are going to be revolving doors around you. But a lot of times you can't affect that. And so not to allow that to seek into your head and mess with your confidence, your mojo, or whatever it is. And, uh, as I said, just be comfortable in who you are. And I think that's been the answer for me do you ever feel like you're kind of qualified to give people advice on how to just sort of do your job and throw everything else outside so it won't bother you yeah honestly just because of experience and obviously some unfortunate things have happened in my life Um, a bunch of different adversities that uh, when, when I speak about those things, when I speak about controlling what you can control, it comes from a real spot. It comes from a place of experience of I've had to do it time and time again from different events from that mom, have happened. From in my, your family, yeah. My brother, brother. Um, my injury that, that I believe when I talk about these, people understand it. They know that it's not just smoke, that I had to do this myself. And now that I'm on the other side of these things, and obviously you always work through through losing people, but when you're on the other side of months, years later, and you're able to talk about it and be vulnerable about it, um, people understand that that's, that's who I am and that I'm talking from a place of experience, and it's easy for somebody to listen to somebody that's that's done it and been in those shoes. Could you ever see yourself writing a book about it? Most definitely. Uh, I think there'll definitely be a time when when I write a book, and as as I've gotten older here these last couple of years, I feel like maybe the first the first book is getting closer and closer. And I've had some opportunities in the past, and I just said I wasn't ready. But um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'll be 30 next year, so wow. uh, I think it might be time for for the first one. Russell Wilson is now in his mid 30s, and he wants to play 10 more years. Have you thought how long you'd like to play? Um, you know, recently I've, I've said. I'll go 10 more, um, and I quickly changed that to God willingly gives me 10 more. I'm going to play 10 more. Um, I've always, as I go back to being comfortable with my skin, believing what I believe in, it's about controlling what I can control and living in the moment, staying where my feet are. So as much as I'd love to play 10 years, I don't want to get ahead of myself. What's important is right now, me in this training camp, this season, I just want to focus on that and make sure all my energy is there, and we can talk about next year when next year comes and so forth on. Two last things. Have you thought much about the last play of the last game of last season? And is there anything at all you do different on that play? Yeah, I mean, I've thought about it a lot. Uh, I'm a big, I'm a guy that loves to reflect. Um, and then obviously in situations like that, something that scars you, um, builds a callus, uh, you've got to go back and reflect. You've got to think about in this game, a bunch of different situations of things happen. What if it happened again? And um, I could easily say I wish I would have went down faster, but I don't, I don't. I think I went and got enough, so I'm not going to say I regret that by any means. Um, the process just should have been cleaner for myself, the center, the line, the officials. Everybody could have been better and more prepared for what was going on. Um, so I'm not going to regret that. If anything, I feel like I should have did what we did at the last play today and made a call where I'm not going to spike it. I, I snapped it at one second and just went and tried to get a Hail Mary off or get something off that gives us a chance, and then we didn't leave the play the snap, the clock, and the officials in the game clock's hands. Last thing, do you look at your chances this year as a team uh, any differently than you've looked at your chances in the past? You're always a totally glass-half-full guy. You're an optimistic guy. 
are you optimistic about this year? Very, very optimistic. And because of the team that we had last year and because of what we went through, um, the way that we've handled it moving forward, I think we're in a better position this year than we, we, we were last year. And I know some guys have gone and some guys have, have left and went to other teams, but that, that's the nature of this business. What we have built here, the core, the leaders, and mixed with a great group of young guys who are hungry to make a name for themselves and getting this league running. Um, I feel very, very confident about where we are and excited about where we are and just ready to, to keep building and, and get this thing rolling. Mike McCarthy just left here, and he told me, he says, Dak was born to be the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when I listen to you talk, I know it's corny, but I kind of feel that way. Huh. Do you ever? Uh, it's a blessing, honestly. I grew up a, a fan of the Dallas Cowboys and always said I'd be a quarterback in the NFL or I wanting to be the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. So. Going into year seven, uh, I'm blessed for everything that's come my way, all the adversities, pluses, minuses, everything in between that's um, made me the person that I am. So if it's suited to be the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, then God knew what he was doing, and I'm just thankful for to be in this position. I'm going to make the most of my opportunity. Hey, good luck this year. Thanks. Appreciate you, Peter. With Dak Prescott in California, I'm Peter King. The Premier League is built on hope. The hope of discovering a new star. It doesn't take long, but Darwin Nunez to make an impression. The hope of rewriting history. And the hope of continuing a dynasty. Unstoppable week after week. This is the Premier League on NBC, USA and Peacock. At the theater, more than the movies come to life. Movie lovers march in and skip the line with digital tickets to the latest movies on the free Fandango app. Ready to grab some snacks. Pick me! And head to the best seats in the house for a night of romance, terror, and quality family screen time. Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. What do you do for work? I'm an ad salesman. (laughs) Oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. My thanks to Dak Prescott for taking time while in California. I want to close out now. I'm going to give you some thoughts about the Indianapolis Colts who I saw and then the Deshaun Watson story that I reported on in Cleveland on Sunday. And then I want to give you my five takeaways from training camp. So let's get into that. So I'll tell you, What I really like about this training camp trip, the Indianapolis Colts had a walkthrough practice on Friday. I got to Indianapolis at about 9.15 in the morning, coming off a red eye, took a two-hour nap, and then was ready to go. And so Frank Reich, the coach of the Colts, suggested that maybe we meet for lunch. So we went to a, a, a Ruth's Chris in Indianapolis. Uh, Frank loves the cheeseburger there. And so we went to this Roos Chris and when I looked down at my watch and I said, man, we've been here for two hours. So you get to really discuss everything about a team, about players on the team, about prospects, everything. So I got a really good grounding in the Indianapolis Colts. And I'm just going to tell you two quick things. Number one, he told me at one point, he said, look, If we wanted to, and he'd do it, and he'd be fine doing it, but he never once has begged to do it. If we wanted to, if we gave the ball to Jonathan Taylor 370 times, he would break every record in the NFL for rushing yards, total yardage. He is so confident in his running game and their ability to control the game. Now, he's going to give the ball to Jonathan Taylor, I think, 18 to 20 times a game. He just thinks, and he's right, that in today's football, you need to really be multifaceted. 
you might be able to go 50-50 run pass ratio, but you go much past that and you're not really developing and opening up your offense. So the other thing that we talked about was not only about having five quarterbacks in five years, but having such diverse quarterbacks. And he said, man, he said, every one of them has been one and done to this point, dating back to Andrew Luck in his first year. And he goes, I just, I just really hope that Matt Ryan isn't one and done. And I asked Ryan after this game, you're 37 years old. Is it more likely you're one and done or six and done? And he goes, oh my God, I hope I'm not one and done. It's more likely I'll be six and done. I can tell you it's music to Frank Reich's ears. There's one other takeaway. And that is watch out for Alec Pierce. Second round receiver, University of Cincinnati, big athletic. I met him after this game. He looks like he's 13 years old. Um, but he's just a very young kid. But, you know, as Reich told me, and he plays like this too. He plays so confident. And of all the rookies we've had, you know, there aren't many who come in and look like they belong more than Alec Pierce. Uh, so and one other quick thing. So Darius Leonard, the leader of that defense, who has been troubled by a calf injury, they've now found out that it is related to a back condition he has. And they are uh, treating both the back and the calf. He may have to play this year at 90 to 95% because he doesn't want to continue to aggravate the calf. So I don't know if you're going to see the absolute Darius Leonard, who's who now goes by Shaquille Leonard. I don't know that you're going to see uh, the real Leonard that you've seen in the past, but uh, the Colts are confident that it will be enough. So I get in my car after this game against the Detroit Lions on Saturday afternoon, and I drive to Columbus, Ohio, stay overnight, and I'm going to drive to Cleveland the rest of the way. It's basically about a five-hour and 15-minute trip. Uh, did the first three-plus hours going to Columbus, Ohio, and uh, stayed overnight and got up the next day and um, you know got my quad shot macchiato at Starbucks and powered through to, uh, to, to Cleveland. So here's what I found in Cleveland. I found a city divided. I found people who say, you know, we've had enough of the rancor about Deshaun Watson. We want to get down to football. And now that it's over, good. We got our decision. Let's all move on with our lives. We're okay with this. And then, you know, a fellow who, uh, you know, a guy who, wrote me a letter at my column saying that I'm done with the Browns at least for this year. I called him, spoke to him on the phone. He wasn't at the game. And he said, I'm done with the Browns for this year. And I told him that I had gone out into the concourse before the game and interviewed a bunch of fans. And one of them said, uh, what, uh, what's the old saying? Time heals all wounds. You know, if he wins, all will be forgotten. And as uh, you know, my, my new correspondent, Kyle, told me, he said, you know, whoever said that, they're probably right. Because at the end of the day, football, you know, and we all know this, football is enjoyment for people. And it's hard to imagine people who've loved the Browns their whole lives. Some of them will, I think. Some of them will give up on the Browns. But it's hard to imagine everyone giving up on the Browns. So be interesting to see how that ebbs and flows during the course of the year. Did some reporting beforehand. You know, the two things that I think were probably the most notable is that, as I reported on Monday, that that Watson has already begun uh, his begun, excuse me, his league mandated counseling, and uh, I think he, the Browns believe that he's going into this with an open mind. And even though he continues to say, I didn't do anything wrong. I think that once this final lawsuit is out of the way and whatever happens, the final civil suit, I think there's a good chance that Deshaun Watson at that point, because who knows when that will be <clears throat> Deshaun Watson at that point will 
finally show some remorse. If he doesn't, I don't know what to say. I just think that's one thing I just simply can't get over. Uh, the fact that he's shown, I mean, he's had these sort of phony apologies, you know, like I take accountability for the decisions I made. And then, you know, that same day he said, I've always stood on my innocence. I've never assaulted anybody. I've never disrespected anybody. I mean, come on, nobody believes that. Maybe the hard, uh, the, the hardcore uh, Watson fans, handlers, agents, enablers, they believe it, but it's just, come on, there's too much evidence to the contrary. So the one other thing that, that kind of got to me about, you know, being there that day and sort of reporting on this is that I want you to think about just the granular things about this suspension. Deshaun Watson starting on August 30 has to be away from the team with no contact. Kevin Stefanski said, I can't even, I can't even text him and say hello. I can't have any contact with him for five weeks. So he's going to be working with his quarterback coach, Quincy Avery, wherever. Uh, he is going to have to be doing sort of the mental stuff. He'll have his playbook with him. He'll know what the team is doing, but he can't participate in any meetings. Then uh, on, uh, uh, I think it's October 10th, he will be able to come back to the team, be in meetings with the team um, for the next uh, several weeks, I think the next five weeks. And then finally on November 14th, he'll be able to start practicing with the team. And the first day uh, he can play a game is December 4 in Houston. Weird coincidence. I know everybody wants to be conspiratorial about this. This had nothing to do with the NFL wanting him to get back that day. The NFL had a line in the sand for a long time. We will take nothing less than 12 games. And I think finally, just to end this, they went down to 11 games and a $5 million fine. And look, I believe nobody is totally satisfied with this. A lot of people are extremely angry. They think the NFL went soft on Watson. I think it should have been a full year. But the bottom line is the NFL did what Paul Tagliabue once advised people to do, which is all's well that ends. In other words, you're not going to get everything you want. But let's get this out of the headlines. Start talking about football. And let's put Deshaun Watson on a side shelf for now. And I think that's why the NFL did what it did. So, finally, five takeaways from training camps that I want you to sort of download from my brain. Okay, number one. Remember early on in training camp when Ryan Jensen, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, went down with a knee injury? And in his place, everybody just said, oh, my God, Robert Hainsey. Even though he's a third-round pick, he played nothing but tackle at Notre Dame. And he's never started a game at center. Now he's going to be snapping to Tom Brady. I'm just telling you right now, Robert Hainsey is not going to be the problem in Tampa. I think the problem is going to be all the other injuries on their offensive line. Um, watching Hainsey, he's got a bit of a commanding presence. I think he's going to be simpatico with Brady. He's not intimidated by Tom Brady. He told me that can't help me do my job. And so he'll be okay. I think, you know, I question Luke Godicki, a rookie, having to step in now for Aaron Stinney uh, at left guard a new right guard, Shaq Mason, NFL veteran, but still first year in Tampa. And now their best line, Tristan Wirfs, he's out, don't know for how long, maybe not for very long, with an oblique injury. Uh, boy, I'll tell you one thing, Tom Brady has, he's got to be careful about, and I think Byron Leftwich has to be careful too on play calling. And I think that, they're going to try to emphasize getting the ball out a lot more than maybe uh, they normally would. Okay, uh, my second takeaway from camp, you know, and it has to do with uh, the Los Angeles Chargers. 
I'm just going to tell you something that I found that was like really interesting on the Chargers. J.C. Jackson, cornerback, who probably is going to team with uh, Sante Samuel Jr. at corner. The one thing about what the Chargers did this offseason, I think J.C. Jackson absolutely solidifies a corner that had been shaky and that that really all focus was on him in camp. You know, when I was there, a lot of eyes on him. And and I I led with J.C. Jackson there. But the reason I did is that nobody's talking about Sebastian Joseph Day. And last year, this was at the end of the year, the worst run defense in the NFL. Sebastian Joseph Day comes over from the Rams. This guy is going to be a monumental piece to the defensive puzzle for the Los Angeles Chargers. And he is going to be a vital piece to the puzzle for the San Diego Chargers, or the Los Angeles Chargers, excuse me. How, how many years will it be before San Diego goes out of my mind on that? Okay, third, New England. You know, the presence of Mac Jones really interests me. And that is, you're talking about a guy who has zero uh, questions about his leadership ability, the fact that he is running this team now. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. He just is out there early and late. And he has taken the mantle from Devin McCourty and Matthew Slater, who basically said to him, be you. And I could tell in this practice that the orbit around Mac Jones, just from what you see, just from players coming up to him and all that is, is extremely focused on Mac Jones and his ability to lead this team. What does that mean? I don't know. This is such a new team with so many new pieces. I can't tell you how New England will play. I mean, I don't think they'll challenge Buffalo. I don't think anybody in that division will challenge Buffalo. Let's go to Green Bay. And this, uh, you know, one of my most impressive rookies that I saw in training camp, fourth round receiver from Nevada, Aaron Dobbs. Now, while Christian Watson, the second round receiver, uh, most people thought, well, he's got to be Devontae Adams. Now, this, in my opinion, I think when you look at Aaron Dobbs, it's hard to emphasize how much he looks like he belongs. And I know that after I left there, there was some stuff from Rogers that he was, you know, a little bit questioning of um, a lot questioning of the root running of his young receivers. I can tell you that he's very happy with Dobbs. And I do think that Dobbs opening day is going to play a major role uh, in whatever happens to this team this year. Okay, finally, you know, Ryan Tannehill in Tennessee interests me a lot. Everybody knows that the last time Ryan Tannehill was on a football field, he threw three interceptions, final one, 29 seconds to go in the game, led to um, a field goal that lost the top-seeded Titans, the playoff game, uh, to, to the Cincinnati Bengals. And afterwards, you could not find one defender of Ryan Tannehill in the city of Nashville or in people who love the Titans. But I'll tell you what really interests me is that in the offseason, Ryan Tannehill told me, look, I'm, I can't let this go. I'm, I'm in a very, very dark place. He went and got psychological help. He's now very much bullish on people should get psychological help if they need it. Um, but at the same time, he is going to be under intense pressure very early on to play well and to sort of reconvince this fan base that he should be the quarterback of the future. Because after this season, it'll be manageable to get rid of Ryan Tannehill if he doesn't play well. And you've seen how well Malik Willis has played in the preseason. I'm not trying to put two and two together at all. What I am trying to say is, Ryan Tannehill is very much worth uh, admiring for how he approached this offseason and the help he got and, uh, and fighting through to try to keep his job this coming season. I think that's going to be one of the great storylines to watch in the NFL this year. So that's 
you sort of downloaded my brain right there. That's my podcast for this week, the Peter King podcast. I'll be back next week. I'll be joining you from Seattle next week. I've got to go do some grandson watching uh, next week, but I, I, uh, so I'll be joining you from there. But I just wanted to emphasize right at the end that um, I'm just so very appreciative for the support at NBC to allow me to go on this training camp trip. I had three tremendous videographers, producers, uh, Kelsey Bartels, Morgan Miller, uh, and my veteran on the crew, uh, Annie Koblitz, who's been with me, I think now on three or four of these trips since I got to NBC full-time in 2018. But just, I can't thank them enough for their selflessness and some of the real long trips that we had to take where I sat in the back of an SUV uh, typing away and they're in front. And, and I'm, I'm a quirky little passenger. Most of the time I want silence. So they've got to put in ear pods or AirPods, whatever they're called. And they've got to either listen to music or listen to a podcast or whatever while I'm back there working. So it wasn't the easiest assignment, but I'm truly appreciative to them for all the help they were to me. That's it for this week's Peter King podcast. Look forward to joining you next week when I have no idea what will happen, but we're going to talk about it. Thanks so much for joining me.